Well, beloved listeners, the relationship between uh, Russia and neighbouring Kazakhstan, it goes back centuries, and there's much bad blood between the two nations over the famines of the 1930s, for example, and the nuclear testing in the 1950s. It is the world's largest landlocked country. It has a border of over 7,500 kilometres, that's with Russia to the north, The nation is about the size of Western Australia with a population of around 20 million. Now, since its independence from the Soviet in 1991, it has enjoyed periods of record economic growth thanks to its uh, rich oil and gas supplies. Now, the political landscape has been dominated by the first president, that's President Nazarbayev, who stood down in 2019 after 30 years in charge to make way for the current president. Now, to discuss this long and complicated relationship and how the war in Ukraine is straining it at the seams, we welcome Joanna Lillis to the program. Joanna has been living in Russia and East Asia for more than 25 years and in Kazakhstan for more than 15 Uh, She writes for The Economist, East Asian News, and has written a fine history of Kazakhstan called Dark Shadows Inside the Secret World of Kazakhstan, which has just been reprinted with an update by Bloomsbury. I welcome you to our little wireless program with the question, how did you come to live there and why have you stayed Hi. Hi, Philip. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I came to live in Kazakhstan, as you said. Um, it'll it'll be 17 years this year. Um, I came to live here. I started out my sort of journey um, in Russia, as many people do who end up living in Central Asia. Um, I actually studied Russian uh, in the UK at university. Um, I kind of picked on that because it was really interesting times. Um, it was it was the late 80s um, when I went to university, and um, it was times when the Soviet Union was changing. And of course, what we didn't know was it was going to collapse um, in 1991. Um, but I started studying Russian because of that, and I was sent on language courses in the Soviet um, Union. I studied in Kiev, in in Ukraine, and also in neighboring Belarus. Um, And although it wasn't a very easy place um, to live, as you can imagine, there was all kinds of of shortages and there was um, a great deal of political repression. But at the same time, it was really interesting times. You could could kind of feel history um, in the making um, because, you know, um, the Soviet Union was opening up. Well, that was one of the things that would precipitate its collapse. But people were actually starting to talk about all these things that had been taboo for so many years. I mean, the Afghan war, the Soviet Union's war in Afghanistan that had been dragging on for nearly a decade when I got there for the first time to the Soviet Union um, was one of the things that people were talking about. The streets of Kiev, um, you could see war veterans, you know, injured and and missing limbs and so on. And people had started to talk about it and express their dissatisfaction, in fact, with the government. Um, And as I say, that went on to turn into the collapse of the Soviet Union and In the 1990s, um, after I graduated, I decided to return to the Soviet Union. This time I went to Moscow, um, where I did various jobs. And that took me to Central Asia, first Uzbekistan and then Kazakhstan. What a unique experience you've had. Now, Putin, of course, denies that there ever was a Kazakh nation, but I'm sure the, uh, the Kazakh people would disagree. 
Oh, absolutely, they would. Now, Putin's been denying this, but there's a sort of a, a Kazakh nation for, for um, you know, a number of years, really. And these are the exact kind of things that Putin says about Ukraine. So that's why it's pretty alarming for Kazakhstan, especially because Kazakhstan's um, a Russian ally, really, um, has been an ally of Russia over this period of independence. Um, and it's, these are quite astonishing things to say about an ally. Now, when you share, as you mentioned in your intro, um, a border stretching more than 7,500 kilometers with Russia, it's alarming to hear those kind of, of, of claims. And, you know, this kind of reductionism, um, you know, it, it's basically a kind of argument um, that, that you probably, um, you know, you, I'm sure you have these kind of debates in Australia too, but this argument that people moved into what were virgin lands, that the Russians would like, some Russians, nationalists would like to argue that there was nobody living in the places in, especially northern Kazakhstan, when they moved in sort of 300 years ago. But of course, there were nomads there. You're describing what in Australia is known as terra nullius, and of course the Kazakhs had been treated as second-class citizens in their own country. I guess the years of uh, Stalin's rule left deep wounds. Absolutely. I mean, second-class citizens is right. I mean, um, you know, they, they were looked down upon. They were looked down upon as having an inferior culture because they were, or, or not even a culture, the Russians, some Russians wouldn't wouldn't call it that even because they were nomads. Um, and Stalin's rule was particularly traumatic for Kazakhstan, really. Um, what we saw then was um, the famine that you mentioned, um, at least a million Kazakhs, most, uh, most of the victims were Kazakhs, died in this famine. It was a man-made famine. Um, it was caused by disastrous collectivization of agriculture, which involved herding the nomads who were used to fending for themselves in small groups, you know, groups of families that roamed together around their traditional roaming grounds. No, instead, they were herded into these collective farms uh, with their cattle. Um, the cattle died, often the cattle was requis requisitioned to send to other parts of the Soviet Union, especially Russia. And of course, this famine also hit Russia and Ukraine. Ukraine. Um, um, but it, it's the same kind of, you know, processes that saw a million Kazakhs die. And then in the 40s, um, Stalin started deporting entire peoples from all around the Soviet Union and dumping them on the steps of Kazakhstan. Um, and that was because he perceived or claimed to perceive them as disloyal to the Soviet Union. And they, this was kind of a process that started before the Second World War, but it really, it really stepped up during the Second World War because Stalin would claim to see fifth columns, for example, the Chechens, all deported to Central Asia, um, Koreans in the, in the Far East, and lots of other peoples. And all this um, drove Kazakhs into a minority in their own land. Over the years, we've done quite a few stories on, on Stalin's famine, but I'm ashamed to admit that I'd forgotten that one of the major legacies of the Soviet era was that 456 nuclear bombs were detonated in Kazakhstan. Absolutely. And the, and Kazakhstan and its people are still feeling the effects of those bombs today. Um, um, now, now, these were the, the Soviets chose um, Kazakhstan as the place to for its for their secret nuclear weapons program, um, which began, you know, but virtually as soon as the United States had bombed um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki to uh, in the Second World War, at the end of the Second World War, the Soviets realized what this meant and, and um, started a huge weapons program in Kazakhstan, claiming, of course, to choose um, a place that was uninhabited. Of course, it was not uninhabited. Um, the place was around Semipalatinsk, 
the city um, called Semay these days. Um, and these bombs have left victims, um, you know, still being born with deformities because of it. You can read about that in my book, um, Dark Shadows, where I interview some of the people who suffered tragic lives um, because of this nuclear testing, the effects of which are still felt. And Russia took no responsibility for all that, left Kazakhstan to cope with the consequences after independence. You recently travelled to a hamlet called Kalachi. Tell me about the villages there. Kalachi became known in Kazakhstan as um, the sleeping village because a weird thing happened um, in that place, which is very remote. It's kind of, um, it was a, um, a several hours train ride from, from the capital, um, Astana, and then a few more hours or an hour or two more by car. I went there in the winter um, uh, through the driving across the frozen steppe with the, the road disappearing under the snow. And what, I, what did I find when I got there? Well, these villagers um, had been falling asleep for no reason that anyone could fathom. They um, would simply drop unconscious, um, you know, uh, and just stay unconscious for days. So they called it the sleeping sickness, and they didn't understand what was going on. Um, and um, that's why I went there, to see if I could see what was going on. People were very confused, um, but they did suspect that um, there, there might be something to do with the legacy of um, the Soviet Union's uranium mining around that area. Now, right next to this kind of tidy-looking um, snowy village, there was the wreck of um, a small town where uranium miners had been brought um, during the Soviet period, um, sort of after the 1950s. Um, and they'd been brought there, uh, lived there, mined uranium. Um, and then um, the town had been abandoned when uranium mining collapsed after the, the Soviet Union collapsed in the 90s. Now, they suspected these villagers that that might be the root of their problem. But it was quite strange because the uranium miners didn't used to fall asleep when they were mining uranium during the Soviet times. Later, um, now you, you can read about their kind of shock and, and, and distress about all this um, in, in my book, Dark Shadows. Um, but later we did find out the reason. Now, um, scientists finally established that it was from the uranium mine, the abandoned uranium mine. And it was all about a combination of meteorolo meteorological conditions that would get these poisons poisonous gases seeping out and making people fall into these kind of comas. And of course, radioactive fallout covered vast stretches of Kazakhstan, didn't it? Absolutely. So the land's been damaged, um, you know, as well as I mentioned before, people's health and their families and their lives being blighted by um, these kind of um, things and nuclear testing, but also other kinds of, um, you know, um, industrial activity. Um, and, you know, there are areas um, in eastern Kazakhstan um, where, you know, the nuclear fallout still makes the, the land dangerous. And this is, you know, this, this has all been very traumatic as, as a kind of history for the Kazakhs because land has been crucial to them in their past. They were they were nomads. I mean, that legacy, you know, now people are settled, but they were nomads in the past. And what everything was um, connected for them to their to the land they roamed. And um, the Russians, you know, came and, and kind of claimed that they weren't even here and also claimed that they didn't have an attachment to the land because they roamed it. Well, that wasn't true. I mean, families, groups of families used to roam the same roaming grounds and they did consider it their land, even though they didn't have papers that showed they owned it. So when the collapse 
colonial settlers came, they pushed the Kazakhs off the best land. Um, and all this has mean, meant, you know, a traumatic history, and it's all embedded in the psyche uh, in Kazakhstan. My guest is Joanna Lillis, and her book is Dark Shadows. Now... It is an astonishing thing to learn that those damn tests didn't stop until three years after Chernobyl. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, um, it was actually, of course, after Chernobyl, um, when those processes in the in the mid to late 80s that I was talking about uh, earlier in our interview, people um, had a bit more freedom of speech um, by the late 80s, by the mid 80s even. Um, and um, people, you know, of course, knew about Chernobyl um, in Kazakhstan and a, a movement kind of swelled up, especially after there was some kind of accident um, in Kazakhstan, minor, a minor one, of course, but a movement, um, a grassroots movement emerged to stop the nuclear testing and a moratorium was placed on on that in 1989 three years after Chernobyl and then um, and then um, Kazakhstan abandoned and um, closed down the nuclear testing site at independence and also Kazakhstan had a, had a stock of nuclear weapons itself at independence um, but um, they the Kazakhstan gave up those nuclear weapons um, as did Ukraine incidentally um, now we see Russia um, you know engaging in nuclear blackmail, but Russia's former colonies gave up those nuclear weapons of independence. Um, and so Kazakhstan's very proud of that, and is still kind of leading um, campaign of disarmament and, um, and non-proliferation. Clearly, we can't begin to understand the modern history of Kazakhstan without understanding its first president. Tell us a little about this remarkable fellow and his rule. Well, um, yeah, I mean, Kazakhstan, the, um, the, this is a man who really stamped his personality on the nation. Um, Nur Sultan Nazarbayev, he was born in Stalin's times, like back in the 40s. Um, and, um, you know, he, he was born into a fairly normal a normal family for the time in, in rural Kazakhstan, near um, near the city I live in, now called Almaty, um, the largest city. And at the time, it was the capital of Soviet Kazakhstan. Um, he, he, he sort of had a traditional, he, he was clearly ambitious because he he had a traditional kind of career type rise for the times, which meant that you work in a factory because the Soviet Union glorified the worker and the peasant. He was born into a peasant family, worked in a factory, um, but he quickly joined kind of communist party organizations, the youth organization, and then other organizations, and rose to become you know rose go, rose through the ranks of the communist party. And, and this and on. this from a family of shepherds. Yeah, I mean, they like to uh, mythologize that a little bit, I think. Um, but yes, he was from a family of, of shepherds. Um, and he rose to become, you know, the president of, of Kazakhstan. He was the Soviet-era um, leader of Soviet Kazakhstan at the, when the whole country, the Soviet Union, collapsed. And that laid, led him to, um, you know, to just inherit the country and become its president. Now, um, you know, many people have admired him uh, for various things, including uh, building a country out of something that appeared to be so brittle. Um, Kazakhs were in a minority, the economy was collapsing, there were protests, um, there were lots of, so many problems. Um, there was this nuclear legacy. Um, so many people admired that. Um, there was an oil boom that really began, the 90s were very difficult, an oil boom in the 2000s um, that really fueled growth. And he was, he was um, to some degree popular, although it's always been hard to distinguish the propaganda from the popularity. <laughs> He's still a very divisive figure, isn't he? He's either seen as a, a despot 
despot who created a kleptocracy or a, a leader who presided over the country gaining independence and wealth. Well, indeed. I mean, these days the talk is all about this being, I guess, um, you know, presiding over a kleptocracy because he resigned in 2019 and there was a lot of um, dissatisfaction and protest in Kazakhstan over the manner in which he simply handed power to his successor without consulting the people. Now, this is an authoritarian country, but people thought that after 30 years of one man, they might be allowed to have a say in who took over. Um, but he handed power to Kasim Shumart Tokayev and it all imploded this year in January. There are regular elections in Kazakhstan, are there not? There are regular elections, but the government um, micromanages these elections to an absurd degree. Um, you know, by the end of Nazarbayev's rule, um, he was standing against real um, tame um, stalking horses um, and would win nearly 100% of the vote, you know, 98, 99% <laughs> in the last election. Um, and uh, so, so yes, that's what the elections were like. The people didn't really have a say. Um, and um, as I said, um, you know, when he handed over power, um, he expected them to accept his successor, Kasim Jamal Tokayev, who's up for election in a couple of weeks, actually. And this is all related to violence that broke out in Kazakhstan, related to this kind of transition um, in January. People have become much more outspoken and took to the streets. Tell me, tell me about the uh, DVK, the uh, democratic choice of Kazakhstan. Well, the DVK is a um, uh, a movement that does that, that doesn't really have much popular support in Kazakhstan. That's run by an exiled oligarch who's tried to tap into protest moods in Kazakhstan. But I think you know it's pretty much it's a bit of a sideshow. Um, I mean, given that what we saw in January was a real outpour, outpouring of um, grassroots um, discontent and disaffection over their political, economic, uh, and socio-economic grievances, people feel unrepresented politically. And they feel that, um, you know, that the, this oil-rich country has failed to deliver the standard of living they want. Um, and um, that's why we saw these major protests in January. But to return to Nazarbayev, um, you know, these protests were peaceful initially, and they turned violent after certain forces hijacked them. Now, we have no full picture because of um, sort of degree of secrecy over what happened. Um, we have no full picture about how that really happened or what happened. But, you know, most people in Kazakhstan suspect that people associated with Nazarbayev uh, were afraid of losing their power, their resources, or worried about their security as he ages. He's in his 80s now. And so they tried to kind of, um, you know, stage something that would um, make sure that their people were in power. Now, the dark shadows of your title fall over the media. Tell us about the state of play with media in Kazakhstan. Uh, well, um, the media was um, heavily controlled, certainly under Nazarbayev, and it remains heavily controlled. It operates um, under um, a great degree, uh, a great degree of scrutiny. I think the most emblematic moment to me um, with the, 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 the questions of the media in Kazakhstan was when um, um, an, an independent, an outspoken independent newspaper, um, you know, when the staff turned up at their office one day, they found a, the corpse of a dog, decapitated dog, pinned um, to the wall with 
with a threatening note. Now, this tells you something about the environment of that time. That would that was in the 2000s um, when um, you know Nazarbayev was in power and very strong. Um, now, this tells you something though about the kind of um, environment that the media operates in. Things are a little better nowadays, um, but um, you know the, the media suffers. Um, you know, it, it's very difficult for the media to report on things like corruption involving um, you know the, the the top people in power. Um, still, it, that's difficult. Um, they're expected to toe the line. Um, they're expected to um, you know refrain from from too much criticism. So it's a difficult environment for media to operate in. We see journalists arrested, just as we see outspoken political activists arrested or or civil society activists. Tell me about the impact on Kazakhstan of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Well, I mean, um, uh, obviously, it's been very alarming for Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan, like Ukraine, shares this long border with Russia and also is home to still large numbers of Russian speakers um, and Russian ethnic Russians. Um, now, Putin professes to be the guardian not only of ethnic Russians, but of Russian speakers. So, um, you know, he uses this as a pretext for his aggression against his neighbor, Ukraine. So it's alarming for Kazakhstan to think of that. Now, Kazakhstan, as a Russian ally, should have nothing to fear, of course, but Putin is aggressive, expansionist, and also, um, you know, there's been many years that um, nationalists in Russia have laid claim to swathes of northern Kazakhstan, and they've really stepped up their rhetoric over the war in Ukraine. Now, Kazakhstan, um, Tokayev, the president, has made it very clear that they that the country does not support the war, although Russia is an ally, and has, um, um, whenever pushed, has said that it stands up for international law. Um, now, um, that's made Russia angry, and that has led to many troll attacks, nationalist attacks on Kazakhstan, and warnings that, Kazakhstan, you're next after Ukraine. So it's a very alarming situation. There's also a big economic impact uh, from the sanctions, which are, of course, not against Kazakhstan. There's also, but they have an economic impact, and um, there's also also this influx of Russians from Russia who are fleeing the draft, who are also, you know, that's also changing society, but also causing some tensions with rising rent prices and so on. Joanna, thank you for a very vivid account of an extraordinary place. My guest has been Joanna Lillis, a journalist based in Kazakhstan, writing for The Economist, Eurasianet, and also author of the book I'm holding up to the microphone, Dark Shadows Inside the Secret World of Kazakhstan, published an updated version by Bloomsbury. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.